This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. November 1943. The Nazis and their Axis allies controlled nearly the entire European continent. Japan dominated the Pacific. Allied successes at Sicily and Guadalcanal had gained them modest ground, but at an extraordinary cost. And on the Eastern Front, the Soviet Red Army had been bled white. The path of history walked a knife's edge. That same month, a daring gambit was hatched that would alter everything. The Big Three, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin, secretly met for the first time to chart a strategy for defeating Hitler. Over three days in Tehran, Iran, this trio, strange bedfellows united by their mutual responsibility as heads of the Allied powers, made essential decisions that would direct the final years of the war and its aftermath. Those three men and those three days are the subject of a new book by Fox News' Brett Baer, titled Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. And today, Brett Baer joins me on the podcast to share how his latest book fits into his Three Days in History trilogy, why the Tehran Conference of the Three Allied Leaders was so crucial to victory in World War II, and how it also set the stage for the division of post-war Europe and the Cold War. He reveals why Stalin held all the cards going into Tehran, how FDR managed to manipulate an eavesdropping Stalin, and why Roosevelt had to risk hurting Winston Churchill's feelings in order to make it all work. He also recalls how lots and lots of alcohol greased the wheels of diplomacy among the three leaders and the crippling toll that all that booze and travel took on Franklin D. Roosevelt. Then, Brett talks about writing the book while he was covering the Trump-Kim summits in Singapore and Hanoi, some similarities he noticed between Trump and FDR's personal style of diplomacy, and some key leadership lessons from those three days in Tehran. Plus, this Beltway insider weighs in on the mood in Washington as Congress moves forward with impeachment. Coming up with Fox News' Brett Baer in just a moment. Brett Baer is the chief political anchor for Fox News Channel and the host of Special Report with Brett Baer, which airs five days a week on Fox News. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire, Three Days in January, Dwight Eisenhower's Final Mission, and Special Heart, A Journey of Faith, Hope, Courage, and Love. Now he's rounding out his Three Days trilogy with his latest book, Three Days at the Brink. FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett Baer, welcome. Thank you, Ben. Well, I'm a big history nut, so I really enjoyed the book. This is, I think, the third in your Three Days series, which covers seminal moments in the Cold War. What do you like about the Three Days format? So this all started with the the Eisenhower book, Three Days in January, and um, I wasn't thinking that I was writing three books, actually, at the beginning. I uh-huh. I really got involved in uh, finding, finding Eisenhower, uh, long story short, I would got the golf invite of of the century by going to play Augusta National and they put me up oh, at nice. the Eisenhower cabin and uh, I was very excited to play and uh, 
uh, poured myself a glass of wine the night before and walked around and realized that I didn't know Dwight Eisenhower, the president. I knew mm-hmm. him as the general uh, in history. And I figured if I didn't, then my generation and younger clearly didn't really know. And uh, I set out to write this book. When I got to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas, which, by the way, if you haven't been, it's worth the trip. It's in the middle of nowhere, but it's really cool to go. And uh, I said to them, what could I focus on? And they said the last part of his uh, leaving office and the farewell address that largely went overlooked in history because three days later was the Kennedy inauguration Mm -hmm. address. Uh, So with that... I kind of got this soda straw look, looking at just those three days of his presidency, and then jumping back and showing how Eisenhower gets to that moment and to that speech. And it's that formula that I I really felt worked, because you could dig in on a narrative, really get into it in a uh, narrative kind of way that's very readable, and not a history book. that was a success, and I went out looking for my next three days, and I came out here to the Reagan Library, and uh, and it was the Moscow Summit right. with Gorbachev. Right. Yeah. yeah, the final summit and a speech to Moscow State University students that, again, largely was overlooked. And once I had those two, I it was kind of like the Star Wars movies. I went back to the beginning. Okay. And uh, so <laughs> the prequel. It turn, turns out that that's the beginning of mm-hmm. the Cold War. Eisenhower's the middle of the Cold War, and Reagan is at the end of the Cold War. Now, you say that you always begin your research at one of the presidential libraries. As you mentioned, today we're meeting at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum. And in the case of this book, you went to the Franklin Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York, which I've never been there, but I believe that's also was his home. Yes. What's it like to be able to kind of get a sense of the man and walk in his footsteps like that? Yeah, it's really interesting. And like Abilene, Kansas, which was the Eisenhower home, um, the FDR library is is essentially the estate itself of uh, the the Roosevelts. And it's really fascinating to walk down that uh, driveway towards uh, the the family home and imagine, you know, uh, FDR trying to to walk after being stricken by polio, uh, pulling himself down that driveway. Uh, obviously, he never did walk again, but he never stopped trying. And you really get a sense of the man. He clearly didn't need for anything. He was very wealthy, both sides of the family. Um, but because of that incident when he was 39 years old, and he loses the ability to walk, um, it changed him as a person and as a leader. And you see that in how he deals with the rest of his life. And the Tehran conference was the first big meeting of the three allied leaders, Churchill, FDR, and Stalin. And I guess the big fear for Churchill and FDR was that Stalin might sign a non-aggression pact with Hitler or even form an alliance with Germany. I'm curious, historians have always debated this. How valid was that fear? I mean, after the bloody battle of Stalingrad, do you really think that Stalin would have considered joining up with Hitler at that point? Well, you know, that's a great question, and I think it can be debated. One of the biggest mistakes Hitler made was to go into the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and fight that battle. Uh, Stalingrad is one of the bloodiest battles we've ever seen in world history, Uh, and more than a million killed. And it shores up uh, that Stalin is then in the fight. 
But he was losing uh, a lot, a lot of men in the Red Army. And um, that is why he's pushing for the U.S. and Great Britain to start this other front uh, in Europe to pull the Nazis out. Is it possible if he kept on taking losses that Stalin changes course? He had already signed one non-aggression pact with Hitler right. before Hitler goes into Soviet Union. Um, you know, it, it's possible. I think it's debatable. I do know that FDR and Churchill write extensively of how much they need Stalin to mm. sign on to their war effort. So it's fair to say that going into the meeting, Stalin probably held most of the cards. He did. I mean, he yeah. really held all the cards. He demanded that the meeting was in Tehran, forcing right. FDR to travel 6,000 miles. Wow. Uh, and, you know, the travel itself in those days, you know, he has to get on a ship, go over, he winds his way there. You know, that travel makes him sick. Um, Tehran makes him sick. Yalta later ends up killing FDR. Yeah, because I kind of feel for the guy because of all these three He's the one who was the sickest, who had to travel the farthest. And at one point you talk about kind of the harrowing journey to Tehran and how he almost got torpedoed along yeah. the way. It was a friendly fire incident. And, uh, you know, they were worried about German U-boats and they had a big contingent of ships, battleships. And uh, he's on the USS Iowa and they've configured it especially for his wheelchair. And they are doing a maneuver as they're going over on this eight-day journey, and the USS William Porter, a destroyer next to it, um, in, a, in a drill, accidentally fires a real torpedo at the USS Iowa. And the Iowa the captain turns towards the torpedo, and it goes uh, by the bow of the ship by about a 1,000 yards and explodes. And FDR is applauding because he thinks it's part of the uh, drill, <laughs> but the captain is sweating because uh, they almost killed the president of the United States and his entire Joint Chiefs yeah. of Staff. And Yalta was an even farther trip, I think, wasn't it? It was. And uh, he has to travel over uh, hours and hours in an open Jeep over the mountains to get mm -hmm. to Yalta. And um, it's that travel, actually, that makes him ill. Yeah. Now, one of the most interesting parts of this book is the accounts of the meals that they shared over those three days and all the drinking that went on. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go into the alcohol preferences of each of the three leaders and <laughs> how Stalin liked to drink people under the table and watch everyone get inebriated. And I think at one dinner, there were something like 365 toasts. It sounds more like a three-day bender than a three-day conference. <laughs> Was right. anyone sober in Tehran? Actually, no, I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, there were a lot of um, drinking episodes, and each each meeting, actually, in the afternoon starts with FDR's classic drink, the uh, stiff martini, uh, pretty dry, and uh, he makes them. He, in fact, gets to the room ahead of time and um, positions himself so no one sees him wheeling into the room, mm -hmm. and he is uh, making... The uh, <laughs> martinis. Um, so, yeah, they did drink quite a bit. Um, and the more that Churchill drank, the more his emotions kind of came out at each one of these these moments. And because of the dynamic, FDR was trying to convince Stalin that uh, Churchill and FDR were not ganging up on him or taking advantage of him. And in part of that strategy was to make fun of Churchill at, uh, at that expense. So... He sided with Stalin and Churchill at some of these efforts, uh, storms out of the the room uh, mad. Yeah, I was really interested in that part because at one point, I guess during one of these Bacchanals at the end of the day, 
Stalin and FDR, I mean, they're almost cruel in the way that they start ganging up on Churchill and just making fun of him. I, I can't imagine Churchill took that very well, but I guess there was some kind of strategy behind that for Roosevelt. Huh? Yeah, and he, he talked about it openly. It, in fact, one, one of the meetings towards the end of the conference, um, he says, Winston, please forgive me for what I'm about to do, hmm. and essentially throws him under the bus uh, laughing with Stalin. Um, Churchill understands it, but he he is very emotional. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. One of his aides said that he cried every day for one reason or another wow. uh, because he was just an emotional guy. And you can hear it in his speeches as he delivers them, uh, but he didn't take some of those meetings very well. Uh, yeah, it's pretty poignant to see this towering lion, Winston Churchill, who had been the lone resistance to Hitler in Europe, being sidelined and mocked like that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I really kind of felt for the guy. Yeah, yeah, you do. And uh, it's it's kind of um, uh, amazing the extent to which FDR takes it, you know, to prove to Stalin that that he's, uh, he's with him, essentially. Um, and in the end, he does. And they sign a pact at the end. And the end result of this conference is the approval and, and planning for Operation Overlord, which we now know as D-Day. Uh, yeah, that was the biggest disagreement among the three, or at least between Churchill and FDR and Stalin, because Stalin and FDR believed in opening a second front, thought that would be the quickest and best way to end the war. Churchill aggressively resisted. Why was he against it? A couple of reasons. One was uh, his own experience as the Lord of the Admiralty. Um, he had a, a cross-channel uh, effort that failed miserably and uh, cost him his job. So he had that in the back of his mind. Secondly, uh, he was not sure, Churchill wasn't, that the Allies were ready for this kind of logistical uh, feat. And if you look at all that went into D-Day and all that possibly could have gone wrong, um, you could hear the concern churning around in Churchill's mind. Uh, and he thought that they needed more practice uh, and thereby go the Mediterranean way as, as opposed to cross-channel mm -hmm. into France. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more when we come back in just a minute. Hey folks, technology is constantly changing. And if you have a business like I do, you know all too well that you either change with it or you die. It used to be that a company didn't exist unless it was in the phone book, and then a company didn't exist if it wasn't on the internet. But nowadays, people are spending less time on their computers and more time on their mobile devices, which means it's absolutely essential to have an attractive and easy-to-use mobile app. If you're looking for a product design and development company to help you build your next app, Mutual Mobile is the company for you. Mutual Mobile has designed and built over 600 mobile and web apps powering many Fortune 500 companies and high-growth startups around the world today. Founded over 10 years ago, Mutual Mobile has partnered with Under Armour, Clorox, Alamo Drafthouse, KitchenAid, and more. This company is the best-kept secret of web design and development. Well, at least until now. Now, we all know about the pain of hiring a freelancer or a new employee only to find out months later that it's not a fit, but Mutual Mobile has a refined process, so they get it done right the first time. And if you're anything like me, that's precisely what you need. Because what do I know about creating a mobile app or what customers are looking for in that sort of thing? I'm no tech whiz. And who wants to spend all the time and money to build their own team? That's not efficient. 
But that's exactly why Mutual Mobile is such a lifesaver. Spanning business-to-business, consumer, and industry segments, their teams champion custom digital product management, user experience best practices, visual and interactive design, and integrated technical operational development capabilities. Mutual Mobile's teams work alongside their partners from strategy building to product delivery to create impactful and scalable mobile experiences. If you have design or development needs, schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Mutual Mobile at mutualmobile.link kick to get started. That's mutualmobile.link kick. Hey folks, I am so excited to talk to you about my new sponsor. I've been recommending chili products to friends for years now. They literally changed my life, and now I am a true believer. Did you know that one of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation? Chili makes both the Chili Pad and Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm-awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the Chili Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Chili sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. I used to get horrible sleep. I'd wake up several times a night, hot, sweaty, and frustrated, tossing the comforter off. But then my wife got me what is to this day still the very best birthday gift that I've ever received, a chili pad. And I've slept like a baby ever since because it keeps me cool all through the night. It's not uneven like air conditioning. It cools me right in my immediate space where I sleep, and now my sheets actually hold the cool in rather than making me hot at night. Now, if you, on the other hand, like to sleep warmer, Chili has you covered there too. But for me, there's just nothing like getting nice and cozy when it's chilly. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Chili really did change my life for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com slash kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code kick. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash kick with code kick for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code kick. Folks, you've heard me talk before about how much I love my chili pad. I'm so happy that they decided to advertise on the show because I have been sleeping cool with their patented chili pad for a couple of years now, and it has dramatically improved my sleep. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the chili pad and the Uller. Two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, chilly sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm-awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the chili pad is simply controlled using a remote. 
Ever since I started using my Chili Sleep System, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But ChiliPad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire consistently and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code kick. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash kick with code kick for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code kick. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the chili pad and the Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, chilly sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm-awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the chili pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my chili sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But chili pad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire consistently and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com slash kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code kick. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash kick with code kick for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code kick. I was kind of surprised to read that I guess the U.S. delegation ended up staying on the Soviet diplomatic compound in Tehran. Why was that? Well, there was a um, 
a an assassination plot that the the Russians, the Soviets, uh, said that they picked up that the Nazis were going to drop in a dozen assassins dressed as Red Army soldiers uh, to take out the big three. That is what Stalin and his people told them. Uh, the U.S. believed that. They believed that there were assassination plots that were happening. Churchill and, and the British thought it was all made up as an effort to get everybody to stay at the Soviet compound. They ended up do, staying there. Uh, FDR goes from the U.S. compound, and, and Churchill is right next door, but he ends up staying at the, the Soviet embassy as well. And uh, they are all warned that each one of the rooms is bugged. Uh, of and, course. <laughs> and, uh, and it's essentially a home court advantage. Not only does mm-hmm. Stalin not have to travel, but he has it's on his home turf and he can listen to every room. And it sounds like FDR actually kind of used that to his advantage, though. Did he kind of put on a little bit of a show for Stalin's ears? He did. He often talked um, about things that they wanted the, the Soviets to hear mm-hmm. ahead of meetings that would come. Churchill took another Attacked, and he would go into the rooms um, yelling, oh, the Soviets, the Soviets are so horrible. Stalin's awful. And he would say it very loudly into the into the lamp. That's a pretty good impression, by the way. <laughs> I've been working that. on it. When, yeah. I, when I listened to uh, and I typed out his speeches, I, w- I would hear that voice in my, yeah. in my head. <laughs> Gary Ullman from uh, oh, The Darkest yeah. Hour. Brilliant. Wasn't yeah. that a great yeah. movie? Yeah, I love that. Now, you've been to all of the presidential libraries of the presidents that you've written about. Have you ever been to Chartwell? Yes. I yeah. love that place. It's Isn't great. that amazing? And it's also, like you, you you could just expect him to burst into the room when you go there. That's right. And also underground for the uh, oh, of course, yeah, all the, the map rooms. rooms and the war rooms. Yeah. Uh, that's really fascinating. And you can see um, when you go there, even to this day, the chair that he sat in with the, the markings on it uh, where his hands were, you know, he was looking yeah. at the map, hearing the radio broadcasts, and and he was taking out pieces of wood on the on the different uh, <laughs> chairs that he was sitting in. Yeah, yeah, it's so fascinating to go to the war rooms and see the little record player where he would have uh, the the secretaries play uh, martial music, as they call it in Britain, or march music, as we would we would call it, as he was writing his speeches and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can really get a sense of the man. I mean, mm-hmm. he had a flair for. Um, Delivering speeches, especially, but writing them as well, and mm-hmm. and um, and and coming up with you know just the right phrase uh, to really fire up his population. And you mentioned it before, but you know Great Britain was the sole fighter of of the Nazis before obviously Pearl Harbor and the U.S. gets in. Yeah. Now, aside from the agreement on the D-Day invasion, what else came out of the Tehran meeting? Well, it was uh, some agreements about um, providing more materials for the Soviets. Mm -hmm. The biggest winner out of Tehran is Stalin, and uh, he gets a lot of concessions. They don't make a a decision about post-war, and that in of itself is also a benefit to Stalin because he essentially is talking about Poland. Well, by the time they get to Yalta and the war war is is ended ending, um, they concede that he can essentially go into Poland. Mm. And uh, when FDR gets back to the U.S., uh, he shortly thereafter dies. Uh, Churchill loses an election in Great Britain. And Stalin is emboldened. He mm-hmm. goes into Poland. He essentially takes over Eastern Europe. And that is 
legitimately the big beginning of the Cold War. Yeah, and it was interesting that I guess FDR didn't want to make any pronouncements one way or another on Poland because he had an election coming, and I guess American polls were a big vote. That's right, in uh, Illinois, especially Chicago yeah. area, <laughs> and uh, and it came down to politics. And uh, you know, in retrospect, I think. It, each leader, as we look at them, is human, and they all have flaws. And one of his flaws, I mean, remember, he was elected four times, um, was that at the end especially, he had a bit of a godlike complex mm -hmm. that he alone could solve the problems of the U.S., that he alone could uh, corral and contain Stalin's ambitions for communism. Um, and he thought that he could, uh, but obviously he died, and we don't know what would have happened if FDR had had lived and whether that would change the yeah. dynamic. And even though they didn't solve anything at Tehran, the post-war discussions sort of began. They sort of touched upon them. Uh, talk a little bit about the three men's different post-war visions of the world. Well, they're all coming from different places. You know, Stalin, even though he doesn't talk about it, he writes about it. Um, and his aides write about it that, you know, he had really big ambitions for communism and the spread of communism. I mean, it, it wasn't really hidden. They just don't talk about it at the conference. Mm -hmm. um, Churchill is still holding on to colonialism. He's still holding on to the old empire of, of Great Britain. And the U.S. and FDR has a big, broad vision about the world's policemen. And he believes that China, Russia, Great Britain, and the U.S. Um, will be the world's policemen, essentially, uh, to keep peace. And he has a vision for this giant organization of nations to prevent the spread of fascism and con communism, and that is the United Nations. Um, it's a very funny story about before the Tehran conference, uh, Churchill goes to the White House and um, they are drinking, as they often did, and smoking. Um, you know, FDR had the cigarette on the end of the um, the holder, if you will, and uh, Churchill with a big cigar. And they're on the back porch of the residence overlooking the South Lawn uh, towards the Washington Monument. And they're talking late, late into the night and they finally break up and... Uh, and go to their bedrooms. And Franklin Roosevelt, FDR comes rolling down and bursts into Churchill's room and says, Winston, Winston, I've got it. I know what we'll call it. We'll call it the United Nations. And Churchill is just taking a shower and he comes out of the bathroom, stark naked into the room, dripping. And FDR is apologizing profusely. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Churchill says, do not worry about it. There is nothing the prime minister of Great Britain has to hide from the president of the United States. <laughs> and that, that is where we get the United <laughs> Nations, believe it or not. <laughs> I love that story. It's just such a classic relationship. And I think you say in the book somewhere along the way is that the two of them were the biggest celebrity couple in the world oh, yeah. at that point. They really were. And mm -hmm. they had that kind of relationship too. And uh and then it gets tested in Tehran, mm -hmm. you know, with the the jokes at Winston Churchill's expense. Yeah. Now it's hard to talk about the Tehran conference without also bringing up the Yalta conference, which is where a lot of these post-war decisions got hashed out, as you mentioned. It's often said that Tehran won the war, but Yalta failed to secure the peace. Do you think that's apt? I think it's fair. I think, you know, FDR could largely say that he won the war with Churchill. Um, 
but they lost the piece because they didn't finish mm-hmm. finish the the deal. And again, what would have happened if if he was still around at that point? We don't know. Um, FDR made those decisions and concessions to Stalin, and he writes about it because he was thinking in the moment. Remember the. The three days at the brink part, at the brink, was that the Allies could have lost World War II. We were not winning. We were losing. Yeah. Hitler, Hitler was on the march. Uh, there were some big battles in the Pacific with the Japanese. And um, it was definitely in doubt before D-Day. One thing that I thought about oftentimes when I was reading this book is the current president. When I was reading about how FDR had this unflagging belief in the sheer force of his personality to win over Stalin and this idea that if these two men can just sit down man to man, things will sort of sort themselves out. It sounds very much like Trump's approach to foreign policy. But to what degree, I wonder, did that strategy succeed for FDR at Tehran and then at Yalta? Yeah. Well, I write about the the connection. You know, obviously I was I was on at the uh, end of the, the book, um, the epilogue, I, I write about the trip to um, Hanoi, Vietnam, and Singapore to for President Trump to mm-hmm. meet with Kim Jong-un. And similarly, uh, knowing that this is a dictator who has killed his own family members, um, FDR sits with Stalin, uh, who has killed millions of his own people. Um, but the force of personality only takes you so far. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's... The best at it was Reagan, which was the trust but verify, who mm. holds the line, knows that he's dealing with um, the Soviet Union, which has communist ambitions, but he is dealing with a partner in Mikhail Gorbachev that he knows he can deal with, and he eventually comes to trust. Uh, FDR believed that once he had Stalin face-to-face, that he could, through proving that he's on his side— uh, get him to come along. And he believed as he left Tehran that that had in fact happened. Um, we know now that, you know, Stalin never got rid of his own ambitions for where he wanted to take the world and where he wanted to take communism in the Soviet Union. And you mentioned that as you were writing this book, uh, you visited uh, Vietnam and also Singapore for the Kim Trump summit or the Trump Kim summit. Um, Do you see parallels between what happened between Roosevelt and Stalin and what's happening as we speak between Trump and Kim? I think they're not direct parallels. Mm -hmm. They're talking to dictators, talking to bad people. Um, You know, Eisenhower did it too uh, with Khrushchev. Sure. But all of them, the only one who really got it across the finish line was Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's arguably, you know, it's better, all of these leaders believe, to be talking rather than fighting. Uh, and I think that that's a lesson that that we can learn from history. Um, I think it's yet to be seen how fruitful the meetings with Kim Jong-un have been. Um, it's already starting again, the threats and the, the saber-rattling uh, from the North Koreans. And um, so so we'll see. But talking rather than fighting yeah. seems to be a common uh, theme. Yeah. What are some of the other lessons we can take away from the Tehran conference? Well, that it takes allies mm-hmm. uh, working together for big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just saw a NATO summit that kind of broke up a little uh, differently than, uh, than <laughs> we've seen in the past. Right. Um, but... Uh, 
it it takes allies working together to to do big things. This, if you look at the the war at the point that it was, um, had they not come together, uh, it could have gone the other way, mm-hmm. and um, we might be doing this podcast in German. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All three of your three days books highlight how a single moment can dramatically change the course of history, and I want to close by bringing it to the present. Here, uh, you've witnessed a lot of seminal events, including the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the 2012 election, and I think you were at the Pentagon on 9-11 in the aftermath. Uh, You're in Washington every day. What does it feel like in D.C.? Does what you're seeing now with the impeachment of Donald Trump feel like one of those history-altering moments? It feels big. It feels every day like history is being made. Mm -hmm. Um, This presidency, this administration is unlike any we've seen. Um, The news cycle is about six or seven news cycles in a day. I tell my staff I'm one tweet away from changing our rundown every (laughs) every night at at our show. And we are. Um, That said, it's also a very divided nation. Um, And there's it's really amazing to see two sides that see see things so differently can look at the same thing and see things so differently and also become a very emotional about it mm-hmm. and i don't know what that says about us as a nation or us as a uh, humanity whether social media has fired everyone up a little bit more that's possible uh, people are stirring the pot a lot more day to day but I think it behooves us to take the lessons of the past, uh, to listen first to opponents and to, you know, people that you're up against and, um, and, and then make your case. It is historic every day. And I'm, I'm blessed to be able to sit and kind of report out and let people decide what they think about it. Um, I think we need more of that and less telling people how to think about something. Mm-hmm. Beyond impeachment, what's the big question in your mind looming over the next election? Well, I think how this all falls out and if the president actually turns this around to somehow to a positive. Mm-hmm. And it's very possible. I mean, Democrats mm-hmm. are dealing with fire on a, a two-edged sword here on impeachment. And just going around the country talking to people I know it's it's not the issue that everybody's talking about. You don't hear it on the campaign trail uh, a ton about the specifics really? of impeachment. You hear, uh-huh. what is my health care? What does my wallet look like? Mm-hmm. What's the future of, you know, the situation that the U.S. is in around the world? Um, it's So we often get in horse blinders in Washington, and um, we have to get out of the beltway yeah. <laughs> to see uh, what else is going on. Well, once again, the book is called Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. And, of course, you can catch Special Report with Brett Baer every weekday on Fox News. Brett, thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Brett Baer for sitting down with me. And I also want to give a special thanks to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley and the Ronald Reagan National Defense Forum for hosting our interview. Order Brett's book, Three Days at the Brink. FDR's daring gamble to win World War II on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Also check out the other books in his Three Days trilogy, Three Days in January, Dwight Eisenhower's Final Mission, and Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire. 
Catch Special Report with Brett Baer five days a week on Fox News and follow him on Twitter at at Brett Baer. Meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These high-potency vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. That means no magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide, and zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Try their selection of heart-healthy full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, fresh, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock. Find these and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.